Um, so our corporate sort of reading plan for this, uh, this summer is the book of Micah. And by that I mean we are reading and preaching through it together for the next several weeks uh, as we take a break from the book of Matthew for the summer. And as for Micah, Caleb has already walked us through the first two chapters. And in those two chapters, Micah has already established a pattern of sorts. First, he preaches judgment, and then mercy. And you'll remember in chapters one and two, they were uh, filled with warnings and woes and complaints and laments. With chapter two ending, however, with a brief oracle of hope for the restoration of the people of God, which Micah describes as a flock of sheep gathering to their shepherd, which makes sense to us. And as a king leading his people in victory. In Micah 3 now, he returns to the subject of prophetic judgment, which means we could say we're beginning the second cycle of judgment and mercy. And as the Lord uh, has just presented the shepherd king, as I say, to his people at the end of chapter 2, perhaps that's why he turns his attention to the under-shepherds of Judah and Israel in chapter 3. But before we get to that passage, um, you can open to it and be prepared. We're going to read it in a moment. But I'd like to put something on your mind. You see, we have in Western culture, at least, an obsession with crime dramas, with mysteries, police dramas. And we have for a long time. We could easily make a list of famous detectives like Sherlock Holmes and Poirot, right? Nancy Drew, Scooby-Doo. <laughs> it, it goes deep, right? And each season, there are more books, more movies, more TV shows with new mystery-solving teams, not to mention we recycle and spin off the old ones. How many variations of CSI do we have now? How many variations of NCIS? How many versions of Sherlock Holmes? Not to mention Mycroft and Moriarty and now Enola. Carrie and I just recently finished watching the final season of one of our favorite detective shows called Endeavor. I recommend it to you. It's great. But it got us thinking about making a list of names of these detectives or these investigators. Names like Jessica Fletcher. I might be showing my age. James Bond. Columbo. Adrian Monk, Veronica Mars, Miss Marple, Auguste Dupin. There are old and new shows. Criminal Minds, Law and Order, True Detective, Midsummer Murders, Only Murders in the Building. That is a fun one. Uh, Broadchurch, Psych, Pushing Daisies, which shouldn't have been canceled. <laughs> the Tunnel, The Killing, The Bridge, it goes on and on and on. These are just the beginning, and they're probably ones that I haven't mentioned that have already come to your minds. You could make your own list. 
And I don't know the stats, but if you want to watch a crime investigation this afternoon, there are more shows than you could binge in a lifetime. And if you're into books, there's even more. But one of the fundamental questions of all of these shows, maybe even more so in recent years, is the question of justice. And there, there may be a trend away from specifically murders, even when there is a murder, to abuses of power more broadly. So the question, what is justice, becomes more and more complicated. How do we measure the justness of justice? Who even gets to determine what justice is? And what if what is perceived as justice is different than the legal definition? What if justice fails? What if it falls outside of reach? What should happen then? Think about your favorite detective, police officer, investigator, superhero. How do they solve a crime? How do they overcome the obstacles to justice? Do they follow the rules? Hmm. Do they show mercy? Or do they get revenge? Or do they value either one? I would say that even when the dispenser of justice decides to show mercy, often the story finishes with a very satisfying consequence for the bad guy, probably brought on himself. That's how we like our stories to end. All that to say, our world has a lot of questions about justice, and we probably do too. And so the things that the Lord gave to Micah to say to the leaders of Israel and Judah translate very well to our day and help us to understand justice, and if nothing else, point us to the questions we should be asking first. And with these things in mind, I'd invite you to stand as we read chapter 3 of Micah together. Please stand as, as you are comfortable and able, and I'll read the entire chapter 3 um, for us beginning chapter 1, going through chapter 12. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off of my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, and flay their skin from off them, and break their bones in pieces, and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time, because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. 
The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is, it, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Let's pray as you are seated. Lord Jesus, you are the God of justice. Teach us now to understand how to know justice better according to your word. We confess we need the power of the Spirit to overcome our preconceptions, turn our hearts, make us receptive to your wisdom and insight. And Lord, may you plant seeds now so that we would be doers of justice, doers of your word, in our community, and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. So you may have noticed that Micah 3 breaks up nicely into three separate oracles, giving four verses to each section, very organized. For each oracle, Micah names the accused party, then he presents the case against them, all bad news, Remember, this is a judgment passage. And for each group, he delivers the sentencing. It's like a court case. So I'd like to address the three oracles, one at a time, beginning with verses one through four, which I have under the heading, where is justice to be found? The accused are named as the heads of Jacob and the rulers of Israel. And from previous chapters, we know that Micah has targeted both the northern and the southern kingdoms. And so this is no surprise. And in this case, he's concerned especially with those in ruling positions. After addressing the accused, Micah begins the case against them with a question. Is it not for you to know justice? Now, I've already alluded to justice as something of a theme uh, of Micah chapter 3. He uses that word three times, one in each of the three oracles. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about justice, not just about crime dramas, but about justice itself, specifically about what Micah might want us to think about when we think about justice. And 
I don't want to trace the etymology of the word or anything, as tempting as that is. Um, Instead, I want to give a, a rather simple definition that I think aligns with Micah's use in the passage. And so as we just read, Micah indirectly defines justice by contrasting it in the next phrase with loving evil and hating good. So simply put, justice has to do with loving good and hating evil. We could put it another way, justice is doing right, or perhaps in the context of the challenges and struggles of the fallen world that we live in, perhaps we could say that justice is making right. So far, so simple. But I want to add to this definition three qualities of justice that are implied in this simple definition, but we may not think of immediately. And just to be transparent, I certainly did not think of them immediately when I read this passage earlier this week. So here are the three things to remember when you think about what I'm going to call Machiavellian justice. Yeah, I got a smile. Good. First, justice calls for action. That's to say, a theoretical study of the right course of action or the right response is not enough. In fact, it's not justice. Justice pondered and proclaimed but not played out is in fact injustice. Justice known but withheld is a lack of justice. Justice calls for action. Second, second, justice calls for wisdom to apply to social, spiritual, personal relationships. When justice deals with financial matters, it sees people. When justice deals with crime, it sees people. And when justice deals with people, it sees people. And people make justice and the wisdom that it takes to find justice really elusive, don't they? Ultimately, justice requires a divine perspective because only God can see the far-reaching consequences of actions. Justice calls for wisdom. Third, and finally, though I don't pretend that these are comprehensive, justice calls for love. As with wisdom, justice is relational. It seeks the good of the neighbor, the relationship, the community. And even when justice deals with judgment, justice is relational. Justice values people. Justice calls for love, calls for action, calls for wisdom, calls for love. I suppose we should also put on the table that the Bible presents justice as the mission of the Messiah. As we read in Isaiah 42 in the preparation for worship today, just the first verse, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And Matthew, in his enthusiasm for Jesus' fulfillment of the pictures and prophecies of the Old Testament, quotes these verses from Isaiah 42. And sure enough, Jesus came 
to establish justice. Okay, back to Micah's accusation of the rulers of God's people. He asks, is it not for you to know justice? So what does it mean to know justice? He's not talking about mere intellectual knowledge. He can't be. Partly because they probably do know about justice. But what do they do with the knowledge they have? Well, they hate the good and love the evil. What it amounts to is this. They abuse justice rather than doing justice. And as we heard last week, a sin like covetousness is all the more tempting and dangerous when there is an excess of power to exercise it. Power like these rulers and heads and leaders have. Now, this might be obvious, but why should they know justice? Why should the heads and rulers know justice? Well, they are leaders from among God's people, the God of justice. And second, they are leaders. And though we have all kinds of models of leaders in the world and throughout history, nevertheless, leadership, especially in God's eyes, by its very nature, seeks justice. Or I should say, it may be leadership all right, but unjust leadership is something like a lying prophet or an apostate priest. It's just as false. So Micah assumes that leaders are responsible for justice. The question is not, shouldn't you guys be the ones who know how to define justice really well? But rather, shouldn't you leaders of Israel and Judah be the ones who do justice? Or at least who make sure that justice is done? These heads and rulers should be in the business of exercising wisdom and love to benefiting people for good rather than benefiting from people for gain. And because Micah is talking about justice worked out in the context of human relationships, it makes sense that the following description of the ruler's behavior deals with their treatment of the people under their charge the people they have the responsibility to lead justly. But, yeah, this is kind of where things take a dark turn, isn't it? What are we supposed to make of Micah's gruesome language in this first oracle? What could Micah mean by talking about eating flesh and boiling bones? Do the leaders really cannibalize the people? Well, no. But the point is that their actions amount to as much. Follow me. Micah may likely have in mind the abuses of power similar to what he mentioned in chapter 2, where the wealthy landowners were overtaking those who were less prominent or less influential. And since the consequences of this kind of unjust leadership was literally shortening the lives of the poor. Micah chooses this disturbing image to shock the leaders into listening, if not even responding 
by waking up to their own wickedness. Interestingly, Micah chooses to address the principle through metaphor rather than naming the abuses directly. What does that mean? Well, you could say that Micah is showing the heart of the matter with this shocking imagery of the rulers sort of eating the people. Not even sort of, the rulers eating the people. It's as if Micah is saying, you think that what you're doing is no big deal, but your sin amounts to devouring the very people you're obligated to serve. You could probably note that the cannibalism metaphor seems to just keep going, doesn't it? It's probably an indication that the exploitation by the powerful of those under their power just keeps going. They're not satisfied by getting something out of people, not until they've used them up completely, down to the marrow of their bones. (laughs) Micah is saying, this is the grotesque but logical end of injustice. This is not unlike Jesus saying, if you have anger, you've committed murder. Or if you have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Here, Micah says, if you have injustice in your heart, you've already made a meal of the people. But the rulers should know justice. The rulers may be using rules and regulations against people as a means of taking advantage of them. They may be steamrolling the people with wealth, with influence, with knowledge, whatever they have at their disposal, treating people as commodities and not as people. And they might as well treat them as food. So let me take a moment and leverage this first accusation for our instruction. Can you see and hear the ugly head of fallen human nature? What do we know? What have we received, especially as the people of God, that we have no excuse not to live out? Now, I sure hope your mind is rush with thoughts of gospel, grace, kindness, mercy. If we have received the message of the gospel, do we turn and attack people with our self-righteousness? Do we enjoy the forgiveness of the holy and righteous one only to withhold it from others who have sinned far less against us? And do we probably leverage their sin, their weakness against them? even for our advantage? But the question is, why? Why would we do that? Part of the answer certainly is that we don't fear God properly. And part of it is because we don't value people properly. Treating people as means, withholding justice, mercy, love, reduces them to commodities. For sure, weighing and measuring people according to how much you can benefit from them is a common practice of human nature. And so we're not surprised when we find it in our own hearts. 
But for us, as well as for Micah's first audience, we call ourselves God's family. And so Micah says, is it not for you to know justice? You who tear the flesh off of my people. And so, after presenting this evidence that stands against the rulers, Micah delivers the judgment against them. Since the heads and rulers exploit people mercilessly, instead of serving the people justly, the judgment of the Lord is for them to be left without mercy when they cry out for it. You could say, in the face of injustice, God puts on a clinic of just judgment making the punishment fit the crime. The leaders have stopped their ears to the cries of the poor, so they will suffer the same helplessness. Again, justice is relational. It's just the rulers have forgotten their relationship to the Lord first. A quick note to conclude the first oracle. Uh, There's nothing that you or I can do to justify a demand for God to speak to us, right? Let alone insist on his mercy. But God will speak to his children. And God will give his children everything they need. And so beware of any complaint that rises up in you that God's not speaking to you. Especially if you're unwilling to hear and do what he's already said. On to the second oracle, verses five through eight, which I put under this heading. Where is the path to peace? So after addressing the heads and rulers, civil authorities, Micah turns his attention to the religious authorities, specifically the prophets. Mike has already identified a conflict with the prophetic voices of the time back when he complained in uh, chapter 2, or when they complained, rather, in chapter 2, that he was preaching an unfavorable message for no reason. Here, he addresses the prophets more directly, and as with the rulers, he presents a case against them and passes judgment against them in the name of the Lord. It's worth noting that unlike the rulers, these prophets are what we could call Micah's colleagues. Micah's preaching against his own vocation, his own social division. Though he doesn't use the same formula in the other two oracles, he begins this oracle with the words, thus says the Lord. This, of course, does not mean that the other two oracles are merely Micah's subjective opinion or anything like that, but that especially here, he wants to be clear where the authority lies. And considering the audience, such a pronouncement carries with it some extra oomph. Among other things, he's making clear that this is not a personal vendetta. He's not abusing his authority, even as a prophet, to hurt people or to give them a bad name. And notice how Micah is doing the very thing that the other prophets are unwilling to do. He's delivering the message he's been given rather than telling people what they want to hear. He represents, in fact, the voice of justice, God's justice, 
which is a hard calling. Micah's not interested in being abrasive or combative for the sake of his own self-righteousness. Nor is he interested, like his counterparts, in sort of lulling the conscience to sleep, nor of the oppressive powers, nor of the prophetic enablers themselves. Instead, he seeks to awaken the remnant and most effectively change the ungodly status quo. So there's a quick application here that we should be willing to speak the hard truth to people, right? Well, this is a much harder lesson, I think. Not least because the variations of speaking truth to people are infinite. Not that truth is, but the way that we approach has as many ways and words as there are people. How many ways can we respond to injustice in the world at how many different volumes? Should our words bite or should they persuade? Which approaches to justice navigate the channel of truth, effectiveness, and humility all at the same time? To address these challenges, I would point you just a few verses ahead where Micah explains. But I am filled with power with the Holy Spirit, with the Spirit of the Lord. We mustn't forget that our response to sin, especially the sin we see in others, must be guided by the leading of the Spirit. Or we are inevitably speaking from a position of self-righteousness. We need to be a praying people for wisdom to speak into the lives of others, whether they are close to us or set against us. We must remember to value people or we will be unjust with them even as we spout words of justice. And so Micah, filled with the Spirit, presents the Lord's case against his fellow prophets. As Micah records, they lead my people astray. The way I understand this is similar to the way Micah defined justice in the first oracle. He defines what he means in the very next line. Namely, the prophets lead the people astray by pronouncing peace or war, depending on whether their greedy and gluttonous demands are met. You could call it something of a will prophesy favorably for food policy. So I'd like to name three ways that this shows the prophets leading the people astray. First, they're preaching lies, obviously. They preach what the people want to hear, if the people can afford it, and they have nothing but bad news for those who can't. It may remind us of 2 Timothy 4, how people have itching ears to hear what they want to hear. And so the prophets, knowing this, 
exploit it to manipulate people. Second, they are showing partiality. The system is not just manipulating people through lies, but it is rigged against those who can't pay up. Now, we have plenty of examples uh, in the scripture and in the world of powerful people expecting to get good prophecy for a donation, right? I suppose this points to a systemic issue because those who have the means and the influence must have been supporting the prophet's scheme by paying for good prophecy. I'll let James chapter 2 speak here, verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. These prophets are convicted. So the prophets are lying to the people, and in their prejudice, they tell especially nice lies to those who wine and dine them. On top of that, there's a third way that the, the people are being led astray by the prophets, and that is by greed. Commentator J.L. Mays sums it up really nicely. Money talked louder than God to these false prophets. Since the prophets preach what the powerful people want to hear, and since they take God's gift and corrupt it with lies and prejudice and greed, the judgment of the Lord is to take away their gift, to replace vision with darkness and hearing with silence. In other words, the very thing that they are using to deceive people is taken away. <laughs> but, but wait... What is God taking away? Consider for a moment the implications that these prophets have to have the gift of prophetic vision in order for it to be taken away. What does it mean that they do, in fact, have the gift of prophecy? Now, it could mean that they are not merely saying what the people want to hear, which is already bad, but that they're ignoring or at least tuning out what they know to be true, whether it's a hard truth or a kindness, judgment or mercy. They are intentionally saying something they know to be false. Now, I see a parallel here with the justice to the rulers. Both groups have knowledge, access, responsibility, and both exchange their gift for cheap gain. And in both cases, they see people as an opportunity, not for love, but to satisfy selfish desires. Before we move on to the third oracle, Micah adds an extra element to this second oracle. As I mentioned earlier, he uses himself as an example in order to show what makes him different from the other prophets. Why should Micah's prophecy be taken as authoritative over against the prophecies of anybody else? He's the one who's filled with true power, namely the Holy Spirit. And according to that authority, 
How does Micah exercise his God-given justice and might, as he puts it? By declaring sin. Like, like he's done for most of the first two chapters, like he's doing now, and like he will do for much of the rest of the book. It's a heavy burden, which is why he needs not just justice, but also might from the Spirit in order to finish his mission. Do you see it? The prophets, the false prophets, preached peace, but it was an empty peace purchased by some bread and wine. Unlike the peace of the false prophets, Micah is committed to declaring sin as a way to true peace. And his peace would be purchased by the body and blood of the Messiah, a rich peace given freely. That's why we're reading Micah, because we still need to be confronted with our sin if we truly want to know peace. We don't find the path to peace through foolish deception, by diminishing our sin, or by willingly accepting darkness and silence. If we want to be free, we have to let the word declare to us our sin. We have to let brothers and sisters speak into our lives, highlighting our sin. We need that message. The world needs that message. Okay, we're in the home stretch now. Final oracle, final heading. Where has the temple gone? This time, Micah begins by putting the heads and rulers in the dock again and restates emphatically the case against them. They detest justice and build Zion with blood. Not quite the same as peeling off skin and chopping up bones, but not too far off either. These details corroborate what Micah has already said, revealing that the leaders who sit in judgment over the people are taking bribes. To the civil leaders, Micah adds the religious leaders. Prophets take money as well as food for their services. And now we learn that the priests too can be bought. In short, Micah paints a picture of a community where every judgment, every teaching, every prophecy has an ulterior motive. And yet, the biggest shock is that these community leaders and spiritual guides who have sold themselves to the God of money, at the same time, as Micah puts it, they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. What audacity, right? They have this unshaken confidence that they are favored and protected. What? we might ask, is the basis of that confidence that they will escape the judgment of the Lord. Do they think the Lord doesn't see? That he doesn't care? That he just likes them better than other people? 
You see, this is not a prophecy against the nations who wander in darkness. These rulers, priests, and prophets are members of the, albeit divided, kingdom of God. Perhaps the greatest dishonor to God is that those who exploit people and seek wealth over doing what is right are the same people who claim to be God's people, to stand for God's justice. And so all of a sudden, this message comes home, doesn't it? We shouldn't be too quick to celebrate the downfall of the unjust, because apart from Christ, we too would be swept away. Listen, my sin is not made less by coming to the Lord's house today. My sin isn't less offensive to God because I know the truth. My sin isn't softened because I serve and give and sing and talk about spiritual things with understanding. The scary thing is my understanding leaves me all the more without excuse. All of these gifts, all of you gifts that I find in the house and the family of God make my sin all the more grievous. And if you didn't already think I was standing up here preaching to myself, the judgment is specifically against leaders. The concluding judgment that Micah delivers is the most devastating. Micah sees the whole leading establishment of God, of God's people, all the leaders serving other gods, especially money. Of course, that sounds familiar. And God's justice addresses both the greed and the idolatry. He will take away the city that has been bought and built with blood and iniquity. All of that gain taken away. And he will also take away his presence and the symbol of his presence, the temple. But he doesn't say temple. I think it's telling that he names Jerusalem, he names Zion, but he refers to the temple as the house merely, and not the house of the Lord. It's as if God's glory and presence have already left. In addition to that, of course, it won't be a standing structure anymore. It will be destroyed, as if it had never been there. We just heard last week how terrible it was for the land barons of Israel to snatch up the plot of land that represented the inheritance of another family. God is promising to turn the whole land over like plowed soil and leave a heap of ruins with no sign of the temple behind. But as we keep saying, there's hope. If we peek ahead to chapter 4, right away, Micah does refer to the house of the Lord, the one to come 
in the latter days. Now, I don't want to set up Caleb too much or steal from him, but we're not looking forward to Hezekiah's reform anymore. We're not looking forward to the restoration of the temple in old Jerusalem, like we would read in Ezra and Nehemiah. That's not the temple we're looking for. Years later, Jesus was walking away from Herod's temple in Matthew 24, and he said something very similar to what Micah says here. Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And that was not bad news. That was good news. Because Jesus liked to talk about his body as the temple. And when that temple was broken down, it would come again in three days. Jesus is the temple we're looking for. He's the justice and peace and the very presence of God. And so this morning is a warning, yes, for us as well. We are unjust. We are selfish. We tailor our words and our actions to please the powers that be. We know the word of God, but stop short of making things right. And we don't bother to cry out for wisdom, as we should. For these sins and more, Jesus' body was broken. And before you or I dismiss these as harsh words, hard to hear, hard to say, please give space to consider your sin. The path to peace leads each of us into a confrontation with our sin. Not by ignoring, diminishing, or denying it, but by confessing it to the Lord who has opened our eyes to the gospel of both his justice and his love. Are we not those who should know the justice and love of God? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us the eyes to see where we are living at odds with your justice. May we love the good and hate the evil. Give us the wisdom to know how. Give us love for people. May we actually desire to make relationships right. May we hunger to speak the truth, to show people the way to peace, whether our words must be challenging or encouraging. And may we know the presence of Christ. He's all the justice and peace and, and wisdom and love and hope we're after. May 
we be so enthralled by Christ that no other idol can distract us, let alone draw us away from our devotion to him alone. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.